Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1150, with guest Howard Dirking. Recorded Thursday, May 28th, 2015. Thanks very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here with Howard Dierking. He's going to be here in just a few minutes, but uh, wow, it's nice to be back in the studio and back from the most dry place on earth, Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> yeah, it was. And we got out of there just in time. It was really nice weather. I mean, sunny and warm and so forth, but it turned into an oven a week later. We really got lucky with the weather there. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for picking that place, Richard. It's over 100 degrees now, so I'm glad to be home. All right. Well, let's roll the crazy music for a little segment we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, I can't believe we haven't – I haven't talked about this before, and we talked about it a little bit on the show before, but uh, I want to point it out. It's Yeoman, and that's Y-E-O-M-A-N dot I-O. And this is a open source scaffolding generator for web apps. Sure. That uses just about everything. And uh, it's a great tool. A lot of our friends are using it. Um, it works uh, well with Grunt, Gulp, et cetera, and, and package managers like Bower. And it's got a scaffolding tool called Yo and uh, lots and lots <laughs> of templates. Uh, it just works well. And a lot of our friends are using it. So check it out, yeoman.io. Yeah, we in a couple of the web tooling shows, we've talked about Yeoman. Yep. It just needs its own little shout out here. So go get it. Awesome. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1096, which is the one we did with Corey House. We talked about web components, you know, seeing how you're bringing up web tooling. Yep. We also talked about web components, and Rodney Norris had this great comment. He said, I really like the idea of web components and see great potential there, but I agree with Corey that they're not ready for prime time yet. That being said, I've heard several valid concerns about web components that worry me. One is dependency management. People complain about how big jQuery is. Well, multiply that by several components that each could be using different versions of jQuery or other libraries. Mm. That, on top of all the other assets we will be grabbing for these components, you could be eating up a lot of space. Another concern is much worse for security issues. What happens when an exploit is found in the library and one of your web components depends on that library? Worse, what if that sub-dependency that you didn't do due diligence on and you have no idea where the vulnerability actually is? Now you have exposure and are stuck waiting for the maintainer to update the library, forking the component to update it yourself, or not even knowing about it. Yeah. This is beginning to remind me of DLL hell all over again. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, the, I mean, the upside is we went through DLL hell and we know enough now to say, you got to be careful with these things and mm. watch how you take those dependencies and be diligent in the relationship with stuff. But at the same time, the goal was to make stuff smaller as a whole, you know, trying to reduce the size of components, not re-engineering every time. Everything's going to need to be granular to make that work. Mm. Yeah. So, Rodney, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And that brings us to our guest today. Howard Dierking is into a bit of everything. Some might say that makes him ADD. 
but he likes to think it gives him the ability to see things from more angles. He's a huge technology enthusiast and has spent most of his career working with web-related technologies, um, mostly in the service space. So currently, Howard is managing a team of fantastic developers at Concur, which was recently acquired by SAP, focusing on all things cloud, microservices, Linux containers, and more. And this is a shameless plug. He's hiring, so get in touch with him. Welcome, Howard. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. You know, I was perusing your blog, and and I love the succinctness of your posts. You know, you, you do have longer posts, but a lot of them are just like one paragraph or one sentence. Like, this is a great one. Enterprise software must die. That's the title. And the post just is simply, yep, all of it. Well, and, and to be fair, thank you. To be fair, if you if you click on the title, there may be a little bit more under the uh, that sort of singular statement. But uh, oh, look at that! There's a whole yeah. blog post there. Okay, <laughs> that's an interesting way to present a blog post with an intro paragraph. But it grabbed you, so hey, oh, there you totally, go. totally, <laughs> yeah. Well, didn't you used to edit MSDN if I recall correctly? Yeah, I uh, you know it, it's kind of nice to have a blog because it uh, harkens back to some of the the good times at MSDN Magazine. That was a uh, still to this day one of my absolute favorite jobs. I remember you did a piece on parallel programming where you wrote three paragraphs side by side on the page <laughs> yeah, that, that could be yeah. read in any order, and the thing still made sense. That was great. That was a ton of fun. Ton of fun. <laughs> it's really cool, but awesome, and a great magazine too. Yeah, yeah, chock full of good stuff. So let's talk about microservices. You were telling us before you're not crazy about that term. Oh gosh, no! I, I you know, my my favorite uh, one of these memes, right, is the uh, the Samuel L. Jackson Pulp Fiction, right, with uh, say microservices one more time. I, I just because you know, just like uh, just like SOA, right? I mean, you remember when that whole thing hit the scene? I mean, mm-hmm. microservices is now uh, it was a it was an idea that has become a buzzword and therefore is now a product that a whole bunch of vendors are trying to push on people and um and i just i, I just don't want to have anything up you know to do with it right it's it's a good idea so let's extrapolate the ideas and let's execute on that let's not try and you know turn it into another marketing jingle and it, it it almost sounds like we're talking about the same thing every time one of these buzzwords comes up. Service-oriented architecture, microservices, you know, they, they're they all sort of related, aren't they? I mean, just separation of concerns, moving things uh, away from each other and, and giving them some sort of uh, singular purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting... Uh, distinction, I think, between SOA and microservices. Now, in practice, it may not, you know, work out this way. But in principle, one of the things I'd read that I I resonated with me is that the focus of SOA was always on application integration. Mm. Whereas with microservices, or let's just call them focus services, so that my head doesn't explode thinking of that stupid word. um, You know, the, the focus is on independent releases, right? Um, and independent uh, cadences and isolation and, and that sort of thing, rather than necessarily app integration. Okay. So the, the, the whole goal here is to each of these things can be revved independently of each other? That's exactly right. And so then there's a bunch of architectural strategies and um, tactics that fall out of that. Um, but if the, if the sort of North Star, right, if the goal is that I can have a bunch of different teams that are operating on their own cadences, um, you know, that that's kind of the 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 thing that all of these other principles and strategies can align to. 
as opposed to just getting sort of wrapped around the axle of, well, is it restful, right? That's kind of the big thing that everybody right. sort of latches onto, or, you know, are you using Puppet or, you know, some other technology specific thing is just keep the focus on, you know, independent autonomous teams um, with their own release cadences. And I think the other things start making a lot more sense. It seems like, you know, with functional programming, isolation, and with the actor model, the whole idea of separation, uh, you know, not only in your own code, but, you know, across services re is really resonating these days. Don't you think? And that is at the core of microservices in general? Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things just in our experience with it thus far, and in fact, it's kind of an, an ongoing discussion uh, internally is, you know, A, how micro is micro, right? There's a sort of a good benchmark that we've been using, which is, uh, and I, we didn't come up with it, um, but is, you know, at what point is does the cost and the complexity of the infrastructure for a service outweigh the actual value that the service provides, yeah. right? Yeah. And because, you know, there, there's this, there's this anti-pattern that's out there called nano services. And that's, that's kind of gets to the <laughs> heart of it, right? Is that at some point you've got so much complexity just to run the thing that it's not worth doing. It's cause it's just too small. Right. And so a lot of times what I've seen with the, the event driven approach or the actor based approach is that you, uh, you end up, you end up getting to a place where you either need a sort of unified actor framework, which there, there are a few of that are, that are pretty decent, um, and, and so you can take that approach, but if you try and do it as the approach that we're taking right now, which is separate actual network security, uh, service boundaries, um, you end up kind of falling into that nano services anti-pattern. And so we, we haven't gone that direction. Um, basically what, what we've said at this point is, you know, what we're going to do first is focus on, um, dividing up our domain into more coarsely granular um, t groups and then services. Um, and we'll focus on explicit boundaries, explicit network boundaries, explicit security boundaries. Um, and then if we want to refactor that to an actor-based model, then we, then we move you know, down that step as an iteration. But I mean, what, where we're at right now is we've got a really large, you know, in tier, if you, if you want to call it, um, kind of monolithic, uh, application that we're trying to, uh, basically take something that was factored horizontally as these in tier applications are, and basically refactor it vertically based on domain concepts. So we're sort of going one step at a time, if that makes sense. I seem to remember Yuval Lowy around 2007, uh, with the phrase, every class should be a service. I heard, yeah, he and I had a few conversations about that. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's fine as long as, uh, you're not having to spin up, uh, you know, new network, uh, you know, VPCs and subnets and, uh, databases, right? Because every service should have its own isolated storage. And so if you're, if you, if you sort of take that and you apply it to the idea with microservices where you have a team around the service and it's a share nothing infrastructure, uh, that may not work quite as well. Yeah, we thought he was crazy too. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you start playing with the world of new containers and the different kinds of uh, of scaling options and things, your granularity matters to you a lot. That, that's yeah. sort of the leverage part. But how do you possibly anticipate what granularity you're going to need? Like, do you have guidelines for what should be in any given service? 
Yeah. So, you know, I can tell you where we're at right now. And then uh, just as an aside, the sort of highlight of my morning was we got our first uh, core OS cluster uh, up and, and serving out traffic and, you know, doing all the Docker goodness. So, I mean, we're, we're, this is kind of, we're, we're moving past the experimental phase into right. containers in production. So we're still at the very, very beginning of that, but we're really excited on what we're seeing so far. But so far, the, the sort of rule of measure for us on on service size, which it sounds like you're asking about, it's less actually about the lines of code or, or anything like that. It's more about uh, two things. One is, does it encapsulate a, um, a chunk of the domain, a, a sort of cohesive chunk of the domain, right? The, right. the, the business domain. Um, and then the second bit is, what size team needs to form around that thing in order to support it end to end? So sort of something that typically goes along with this whole microservices world is DevOps, right? And I'm sure you guys have done uh, many shows on DevOps, but you know, I'll sort of jump into that for just a second. And that is that all of our service teams are completely end to end accountable for everything from the design of the service to the deployment of the service to the, you know, operationalizing of the service. Nice. Uh, and so, you know, when we talk about the size of the service, it also, you know, a big factor is, well, you know, what's, can we, can we run this service end to end with a team of between, you know, five and 10 people? So is this because you're a startup or is this a philosophical thing about just having the guy who built it ultimately is responsible for operating it too? Yeah, no, we're, we're anything from a startup. Uh, okay. You know, Pretty good, pretty good size company. Um, but no, it's more a matter of, you know, if we really want to, um, you know, do this, you know, have these separate services that can scale and release and all of that, then we can't, um, we can't have partial accountability, right? Because it, it's, it's sort of impossible to say, well, yeah, we're going to, this, this team is going to uh, release this, you know, set of features, this set of capabilities and this timeline, Um and then write the code, check it in, and then hand it off to somebody else right. who has completely different commitments, completely different priorities, um, doesn't know the code. And, you know, what we've found, too, it's, it's a bit of a quality issue. It's not even sort of orthogonal to microservices is one of the things we were noticing was when developers only job was to write code and dump it into source control, um, they were really writing code that was not set up to be that successful because it didn't, they didn't understand things like security and things like how this is actually going to be run. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really about sort of driving the quality bar up um, while driving federation uh, between the teams, um, you know, kind of all in, all in one shot. I just like this idea of an architectural choice that affects your culture. Well, it's it's Conway's law, right? You uh, you get the you get the software, you get the product that is a reflection of your organization, right? For better or worse. Yeah. You talked about security layers and things like that. Um, you recently wrote a post about API gateways and the yeah. good and the bad of them. Where do they play in this uh, in in your book of rules? Yeah. So we're we're sorting that out at the moment. Um, we went one direction, and um, we haven't really been uh, super. Uh, stoked about what we're seeing with the, the results of that direction. And that was, you know, like a lot of people do is we're going to have this single gateway. We're going to route all of the traffic through that thing. And then, you know, people had gone and said, oh, look at all the features that this can do. It can, 
you know, do your SSL termination. It can do transformation from JSON to XML and back again. Mm. And, you know, I think everybody kind of looks at the features that these gateway products have and they go, you know, they, they sort of go, well, it's here, so I can do this and I can do this. Um, and you sort of turn off your, your architect brain, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, what we found is that the more of that kind of stuff that you took advantage of, uh, two things were happening. One is you were basically externalizing things that are actually like application logic that you should be writing, testing, owning, you know, being accountable for. Yeah. Um, and you're externalizing it to this thing that you can't run on your local dev machine. In fact, right. you can't really run it in a test environment. And so, you know, that was one problem. Um, you know, and, and the other problem was just that um, it, it just didn't, it didn't have a lot of the scale characteristics that we were looking for, whether it was a, you know, global scale, whether, you know, it was uh, different environments and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. You're basically asking your, your clients to route all traffic through this thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that becomes the first point of contact. You're, it's kind of like a funnel problem. And it's a single point of failure, right? That's right. the other the other thing. The other thing that we that we as we uncovered more about just uh, some other tools and technologies that Concur already had acquired is that you know we use we use Akamai, and I know there's a lot of other services that do the same thing, but as a as a as our network edge, and yeah. we realized there was so much overlap um, between what they were doing at the edge and what this thing needed to do. And, you know, if we were going to use this gateway, well, we couldn't use the edge. And frankly, our edge network is heck of a lot better at doing some of those things than, you know, this, this gateway product that's deployed in, I don't know, what, three or four data centers, whereas our edge network is 200,000. Wow. You know, so it's, so it's like, you know, you're, you're sort of uh, foregoing the use of something that's immensely more powerful because you've got this all-in-one box kind of a thing. Yeah, it's just, it's just the mentality of how to organize this stuff. Yeah, and, and I'll add, you know, I think a lot of the, the reason that people go to gateways, especially, you know, folks that I talk to, um, both that are vendors and consumers of these products is, and I, and I understand this, and I, and I kind of feel for uh, this as a, as a requirement, is that a lot of people have, over the years, built APIs that they're just frankly not happy with. And they're using this gateway product as a level of indirection yeah. to sort of cover up some of these things that they're not happy about. Yeah, I'm with you. I get it, you know, but I also... That doesn't I, make it right. <laughs> well, and it's also, it's like, you know, there's there's got to be an, an analysis of cost, right? At what point is the cost of operating, you know, this gateway, you know, at what point do you, do you break even where if you had just invested it in fixing your APIs, you, would, you know, you would have spent <laughs> the same amount of money and had one less moving part, you know? Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's another challenge here of just you're going to rev these things independently. You're going to start making new versions of these effectively different APIs. How do you maintain backward compatibility? Like what, what's the approach to I rev this, but I don't break people who are dependent on what was came before? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple things. And this is where we're still in the, the learning stage because we're, we're rolling this out. Um, yep. But we're, our plan is to always support N and N minus one. Right. Okay. And the way we're all Amazon Web Services. And so we're planning on leveraging, and this goes a little beyond your question, but you know, it sort of ties in, which is how do you um, partition, name, and discover your, your APIs? Yes. And you know, this is another one of these areas where gateway products have a whole bunch of, you know, different options and you know, they can do URL rewriting and all these things. 
And what we really believe the right answer is, is, you know, it kind of goes back to a lot of, you know, rest, right? People love to debate all the, the uh, you know, sort of intricacies of rest, but at the end, it comes down to just how does the web work, right? Yep. And, and we believe the same principle applies to he- applies here, which is how are things named on the web? And the answer is DNS, right? So we plan on using the DNS system really heavily um, to partition out our services, right? And then even to handle versioning, right? So VIP swapping is a pretty common technique. Um, so basically, we're planning to do... Um, you know, when we do that, uh, that, that swap, w- what we're planning on doing is kind of that red-black deployment, right? Kind of like what Netflix does, which sure. is we bring up a whole new auto-scaling group with the new version of the service, um, and then we just swap the IP over to point to the load balancer of the new. But that, so that still speaks to running one version, right? That, that's right. just a, a real-time way to roll out the new version without ever being down. Um, there's sort of two options we're weighing. One is to use... Uh, DNS to have the version number explicit in the the host name. Right. So naming the thing v1, v2, v3. That's right. That's right. And the second is to basically always run one sort of process, um, which exposes the version, which basically supports your n and n minus one versions as just a part of its code base. Right. So. Right. That would sort of materialize in the as path segments. When I'm thinking about the WCF approach of just add more parameters that are effectively optional, if you don't if you don't pass them, they're considered null. If you don't receive them, they're considered null. But there's no there's right. no uh, API validation or anything. It's not saying no, th- this mm. didn't match. I'm not going to run. It just goes with what it's got. Right. Well, and here's the here's the fun thing for us is that you know to sort of take it up a level from the WCF approaches. Um, we, we do have a pretty, uh, restful bias and, you know, I probably am a little more dogmatic than some about it. Um, but the, the idea is again, it's how does the web work? So we don't, we don't actually have parameters, right? We have documents. And so, yeah, so you can pass a document and if we understand it, then we work with it. And if we don't, then we give you a 400. And like one of the cool things that, that I think we've done is, you know, all of our except, right, uh, all of the content types that we work with, it's all JSON, right? But then yep. we extend that with JSON schema, and we allow you to supply that via either a link header or a profile uh, parameter on the content type. And so one of the cool things is, uh, you know, we can even, we, we either give you a list of schemas that we support, or one of the things we're even looking at doing in the future is, um dereferencing a schema URL that you provide us, um, you know, it, and it's not this in general for every service, but for some services, uh, we can even start validating against custom schemas for partner integrations. Ultimately extensible. Yeah. And at least you can read the document. I mean, that's really what it's all about. You don't want to get hung up on a type somewhere. Exactly. We're, yeah, we're, we're all documents. I mean, it's, it's just, again, how does the web work? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, no, and I think it's it's not a bad approach, even though you didn't have to do it that way. That's right. It's, it's just all text, only vaguely structured text. And you know, the cool thing about it, too, is that from a service discoverability point of view, I was actually reading this week that um, on our Edge network, they said that I think 6% of all uh, attacks were, on, were targeting um, web service discoverability endpoints. Mm-hmm. And the, the funny thing about that is that if you... If you buy into the the sort of restful approach, um, then your discovery is basically just a static document with a bunch of links in it. Right, and you like you know what the API calls are, 
right? Yeah. They're, all, mm-hmm. they're the rest calls. They're going to be the same every time. It's just yep. what document do you pass? Yep. And and that's a, that's interestingly obscuring in the sense of we're not doing an enforcement. You can't really explore us. You just have to know what to pass. We'll respond appropriately or we won't. And we'll even tell you what schemas we accept via the uh, link headers that right. we give back in the response. So we support, um, you know, like head requests and, and options requests and things like that. And we'll give you back links uh, to, you know, what's allowed. Would you call it micro SOA? <laughs> <laughs> You're just, like, we just pick up every term that I hate. Yeah, right. That's what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a crazy term for it your own i i think we've been sort of running with focused services focused i mean at services. the end of the day it's just services right sure. but we sure. we want to capture the spirit of i mean honestly it's the unix spirit right which yeah. is every tool should do one thing and do it well yeah yeah isolation yeah and and they, still you have situations where you have some stateful information you're, you're building up something Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's your approach? Where do I, where does the state live? Yeah. So, you know, we, the, all of our services, it's not to say that they're all stateful. Um, it's just that they each manage their own state, right? And so what you then get into is, okay, well, if this particular service needs things from this and things from this, um, first of all, this is where links become really, really helpful. Right. So you, you can, act, you, can um, you know, I need, for example, uh, a receipt. Um, and let's say that I'm a expense report service, right? Well, I can absolutely get the pointer to the receipt. It's called a URL. And right. I can choose then to bring down a representation of that and I can cache it, but I preserve the link so that if I look and I see that that cache is, is up, then I don't even have to do any fancy logic. I just dereference that URL again mm-hmm. and I know it's going to be there. You know what you're going to get yeah. for it. That's right. But it, that also presumes endlessly persistent URLs. Yes. Although, I mean, this is just routing. You're actually computing the thing every time. Sometimes. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the great things about uh, using URLs like that is that when you have things that you know are, are um, uh, permanent, right? They, uh, you know, for example, in our case, uh, a large number of our entities uh, can't be modified, right? Because there's a, an auditing <laughs> requirement there. Um, so once you know that that's the case, you can just materialize those things into storage, whether it's S3 or, or blob storage or whatnot. Right. Uh, and that's the link. Because again, it's it's just a link. And the only thing that matters is the name of that link, the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the result. That's right. You don't need anything else beyond that. Yeah. But it does bring up the question about security like how do i keep everybody from calling this like what 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 approach are you taking to limiting access and what kinds of clients are going to be calling it too that's another so question. we have yeah so let's we'll talk about that first so we have um let's say three buckets uh let's say uh, four buckets so um we have the web app right that's kind of our our big web front end mm-hmm. we have a, a mobile front end um we have third-party partner integrations um, and then we have other services, you know, that are that are our own services, right? Um, and and those can range from the sort of transactional data flows all the way to data science and BI kind of data flows. So um, there, so there's a couple layers, right? On the the very sort of outskirts is we take advantage of our edge network, right? So Akamai, and um, 
they specialize in, you know, things like DDoS protection and, you know, IP restrictions and whitelisting and blacklisting and all, all of this, you know, um, more network level kind of kind of security and even into some uh, application protocol level security. Um, and then we're one of the things that we're looking at doing is actually creating um, our own STS, right, our own token issuing service. Um, and that will be able to handle our authentication. Um, it can also, will also hopefully be able to federate with, you know, um, other identity providers and those sort of things. And then it will issue tokens, right? And so all of the services, you know, we talked about gateways before, and one of the things we're looking at is, well, what would, you know, there, there's certainly some shared functionality that all of these services would benefit from, um, like processing tokens, like that's a big one. In fact, mm. one of the, you know, one of the, the things that we've kind of realized is that most of the gateway functions, whether it's security related or routing related, or, you know, it all ties to a, to a, a claim in a token or a set of claims um, and so one of the things we're, we're looking, we're toying with is the idea of building gateways as like Docker containers, for example, that can just be deployed as a part of each service's own stack. So at that point, you know, when you get into the service boundary itself, then whether it's a gateway or whether it's code or whatnot, um, it's going to be processing the claims themselves, right? And at that point, you've been authenticated. And so it's figuring out whether you have the rights to do anything with this service, um, and you know, just handling that kind of stuff, and then that flows through the entire uh, the entire service chain. Um, the STS then is capable of handling different types of authentication, whether that's federated, whether that's you know username password, whether that's multi-factor, and in, more importantly for internal or internal other uh, concur services, uh, we can do things like X509 and you know other sort of more service-to-service -service authentication techniques. But all of the services still just process tokens that have claims. Right. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to set up a couple Windows laptops facing each other and let Cortana answer her own silly questions until she gets pissed off and shuts down. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try that. I always wanted to do that, actually. Yeah. And I just don't know how far it would go, but it would be a really fun thing to do. Anyway, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can now create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Will Roman. Congratulations, Will. Golf, Golf clap for you, for sir. You, sir. <laughs> the clappers. The clappers. And Will just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a great big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And... Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology in the form of a shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Howard, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you be buying? <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a pretty big uh, audio junkie, and uh, one, yeah. of the, one of the, my favorite pieces is um, I have some custom-molded in-ear monitors. 
Um, and I, I love them, but if I had unlimited funds, I would actually love to get my hands on some JH audio, uh, 16s, which are, I think what, eight drivers per ear. Oh man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can't stand having things in my ear that, that, uh, well, I'm a drummer, right? So not having something in my ear will, uh, make it so that I wouldn't need to have anything in my ear because I I suppose you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Drummers have that hard problem. They can't really wear headphones because the head goes, you know, bopping and racking around and those things fly off. Well, and you know, unless you're, unless you're in like a Lincoln park, it's kind of hard to make it look cool. (laughs) Yeah. The JH 16s pro custom in-ear monitors start at $1,200. Nice. They do. Now that's a pair of headphones. Yeah. I might add to that, uh, you know, maybe, a. Uh, a Mac Pro, not that I even need that much horsepower, but just my amazement that it has that much horsepower. <laughs> yeah, you can blow five grand on a Mac Pro without even trying. Yeah. <laughs> you can blow twice that. But I think with all of the optional accessories, we could probably get there with a pair of headphones, which would be a first. Yeah. $5,000 worth of headphones. Now you're talking. <laughs> that is really something. And you used to work in a studio, didn't you? I did. I used to run a recording studio back uh, 15 years ago. Back when they existed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's dark, man. Very dark. Oh, no, it's not. It's true. It's the Pro, truth. Pro Tools destroyed them all. Pro Tools destroyed them all. Everybody's, every album that you hear on the radio or every song is probably done in somebody's bedroom. Right. Yeah. It's really true. That's all it takes now, right? Yeah. Well, I remember reading that uh, even the big studios were renting out houses in L.A. and recording just in houses. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> they were awesome. Yep. I have a I have a friend and a colleague who works at Pop sometimes, uh, who worked at uh, River Sound in New York City, Donald Fagan's studio for a while with the Steely Dan guys. Oh yeah, and uh, the stories. Oh my God, the stories oh, yeah. are epic. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I wouldn't mind getting over to see Dave Grohl's studio with that uh, Neve console that he's running. Yeah, those are sweet consoles. There's no no yeah. doubt about it. So I've made a terrible mistake. What's that? I have browsed around the JH Audio site. <laughs> So the the Siren series Layla, as in name for the song Layla, mm-hmm. uh, with twelve drivers per side, this is an in, in ear headphones, uh, twenty six hundred dollars. Wow! Don't do it, Richard. <laughs> Just watch me not. That's a lot of money for a pair That's a lot of, of headphones. Drivers. <laughs> I'd be a little bit upset if I lost those. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> They look beautifully made, but for that price, they ought to be. Yes. <laughs> 12 drivers. Good Lord. All right. Howard, you're hazardous. Yep. Just a little Sorry. bit. <laughs> but nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Got an expensive hobby. I wouldn't know anything about that. No, no. no, no none of, of us have not. expensive hobbies around here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Where were we? Because, I mean, I'm, we've had a bunch of shows where we've been talking about enterprise service bus and things like that. And the microservice idea sort of sells into this. This idea of being able to compose up a transaction across many versions of different services. You know, they, it, service buses are, seem all clean and organized until you rev everything a few times. Yep. I mean, are you even thinking that way? That's that's not your concern? We're, we're really not. Um, you know, and in part, it's because we, um, you know, there's there's still some experimenting to do. And like I said, I'm, I'm open to the idea of that as an optimization but in general, it sort of seems anathema to the whole idea of uh, independent services, independent teams, um, 
when you, you see, it seems like you would lose that independence by having to basically um, depend on something else for all of your input and output. Yeah, absolutely. But and you, this just gets into that. I don't care where it lives or anything like that. But discovery is still a, a key part of it. I mean, you're actually trying to do. How do you how do you abstract your discovery? Like, you, I guess it's all through the DNS, right? You're just you're calling this sort of a global name, and the DNS will redirect you to a more specific name. Yeah, that's that's part of it. The other thing is just at a high level. Again, it, it can just be if you're if you're running off of links, it's just a static JSON document that sits in the sort of root DNS namespace. Right. Yeah, it just redirects. You know. Yeah. It almost make me nervous. I mean, again, well, it's it's but it's how the web works. I mean, yeah. and that's that's kind of what it comes down to is that any one of these these pieces of of more I'll call it fancy technology, um, you know, functionality wise, they can do some really interesting things, but do I have the confidence that they can scale to the level that the web has? I, no, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All you know for sure is that the other approaches aren't going to scale. Yeah. Um, and I, and I know this one does because it's been proven over, yeah. you know, decades. Right. Yeah. And it's not all, it wasn't just because of you, right? There's other people using code. That's right. Hmm. Well, I think it's a, a part, part of the equation. It just seems I, the, the argument against rest is the sort of bulkiness of it all. Yeah, no, and it is. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about REST specifically, um, absolutely. And what one of the things I'm I'm kind of curious about, uh, you know, how it's going to play out is a RESTful architectural pattern over HTTP two, um, when it sort of takes away some of that bulkiness by virtue of the fact that it's a binary exchange format. Right. Um, but that said, even without um, taking advantage of the multi levels of intermediaries and proxies and caches and just being thoughtful about the, you know, again, it's just, it's, it's not relying on a technology or a product to do your thinking for you. Right. right. It's, it's, it's really thinking about these things. Um, and I, I think that these are actually pretty overcomable uh, challenges. Well, yeah, he said, lean on what the internet's already given you. Don't have to roll your own for everything. That's right. Can you walk us through um, the building up of uh, of an architecture using microservices? Just to just pick any kind of sample uh, scenario. Yeah, sure. So, um, like one of the things we're going through right now, because again, we're trying to sort of break apart this this bigger monolith. Um, and what we've really, you know, where where it starts is really understanding the business domain, right? So, mm. um, so our product, you know, has several different. Uh, concepts, you know, within the travel and expense domain. And so it's taking one of those concepts and saying, okay, let's just rip out every, like, you know, the goal is to rip out everything from this. And so we spin up, you know, kind of a whole new, as if it were a completely greenfield project, right? And we, and then we, we sort of, we do the design, we funnel the, the requirements, uh, we look at the data, but we don't, we don't lift and shift. We don't migrate. It is a greenfield project. Um, and we stand it up. And then we have, we identify the dependencies, some of which we know, some of which kind of come out of the woodwork as you start turning things off, right? Mm. Um, but we stand this thing up. It's got its own, um, it's got its own network. It's got its own security boundary. It's got its, you know, it's, it's completely isolated in AWS. Um, and in our case, you know, this is really good because A, the security boundaries limit the scope of breach. You can do actual defense in depth. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, it sort of forces you to really understand that set of concepts, you know, by themselves and not, um, 
sort of understand them through the lens of other concepts and, and have domain bleed, right? But we stand these things up and we just iterate until this thing is is built up and other people are using it and it makes sense and everybody's happy. And then we migrate the data that we need to migrate um, and we shut off the old, right? And now you've mm-hmm. pu- pulled one piece out and then you move on to the next one. Yeah. How do you know when it's time to shut it off? Well, when all of the, when you've got a feature parity and when you've got data parity, Right. Um, and, and what what we tend to what we've um, what we've tended to do, and it's had some some mixed results thus far, is you sort of shut off a piece and you see if somebody screams. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and if they scream, then you sort of like you know you know turn it back on, get the band aid, and move them over, and you kind of that's an old technique Richard and I have been doing for years, many many years. Yeah, and it's <laughs> I, you know I, I would love to say that there's some you know more scientific way of. Uh, of predicting all that stuff. But when you've got a almost 20 year old product, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, that, and that's, that is exactly the challenge here, but uh, it also depends on if, whether you control all the endpoints, right? Like, do you really know who's calling you, what they're doing and so forth? The public API that can get really challenging. Right. And, and, you know, because of that, uh, we actually, that's, this is again, where rest is really helpful for us is that, um, we have a, a relatively, you know, for receipts, let's take that as an example. Um, we don't have a upload this type of receipt and upload this type of receipt and post this type of receipt. And we have a, a post endpoint and it takes right. different types of documents. And so we, we, you know, by following some of those uh, just design a- approaches is we're able to have a relatively small API surface, you know, when you stack that up against all that it can do. Right. I wonder about the gotchas here because, first of all, how granular do you make a, a, a service? You know, what, what goes in, what doesn't go in, where do you draw the line, where do you draw the boundary? I guess you sort of have to have a good feel for that. I mean, it's, 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 it's less about the technology and it's more about the domain. Right. Right. It's, it's understanding your business. And so on that one, I, I honestly, I think it's probably more art than science. That's exactly what I'm thinking. You really have to smell it out and say, nah, that, that feels like too much, too heavy. We're going to have to lighten it up. Which goes to my hatred of the, of the whole microservice buzzword bingo kind of universe is because people that are out there doing, selling microservice products, they don't, they don't pitch it like that, right? They say, well, you know, this product will define what your microservice is. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no <laughs> that'll it, work you got it backwards we, we've tried this like yeah lots of times it doesn't work that way yeah maybe in a cookie cutter kind of uh site where everything's predefined architecturally beforehand maybe but i mean if you're building a, a calculator it probably you could probably do this yeah right? i suppose <laughs> so and then the other thing is when you have all these things that have to work together in orchestration, you know, the benefit to having a single point of failure is it, it, it fails, it's down. Without a single point of failure, one thing fails and everything else has to sort of pretend to work. <laughs> well, yeah. So either pretend to work or even better, actually work, which, I mean, it's kind of the nice thing about this approach is that it really forces you to figure out what you're dependent on because you're actually dependent on it versus in a monolithic structure, you end up being dependent on things that you don't need to be, that you're, you're dependent on only because you happen to sit within the same process, for example. I could see a service that does nothing but figure out what how much tax to charge a customer, right? Sure. And then, you know, if that's down, it's like, ah, the, the tax generator's down. We're just going to give it to you. 
Well, <laughs> that would be pretty sweet. We'll just make up some arbitrary number. We'll work it out later. Don't worry about it. But that also, I mean, that, that speaks to something that, that we haven't talked about yet, which is, is important, which is that in this kind of design, um, almost everything is an asynchronous workflow. Mm, right. You know, and so, uh, yeah, and so all of these services, you know, A, you have to explicitly know what things you depend on, and B, you have to write your code such that you assume that those things are going to be down, and you've already identified what your compensation strategies are. Yeah. So, I, and so one of the things I, I was thinking about this as, as we talked through a couple of these, these items, which is um, microservices or focus or whatever we want to call them, um, I think there are a lot of benefits um, this is similar to, to rest. I mean, there are a lot of benefits, but it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, a lot of this stuff has been really challenging, um, for us because we all started as, you know, sort of your stereotypical devs. Um, we didn't, we didn't know how to calculate subnets, right? We didn't know a lot of these, you know, these sort of things that, that come into play when you take full end to end ownership of a service. And we've, we've had to, to learn them. Um, and it's been really great for the team on both productivity and, and team morale and, and all of that, but it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, at what point do you, you know, you don't, you have five or six pieces that all need to come together or more to, mm-hmm. to make an order, for example. And, uh, if they don't all come in, what do you tell the, what do you tell the customer? I mean, those are real, those are real yeah. questions and real problems. And I'm asking you, what do you tell the customer when, for example, we can't calculate their shipping or their tax or whatever because something's down? Well, right. And it's never, it's never we can't, right? It's that um, there's a delay. Okay. We haven't done that yet. Right. Yeah. So we're working on this. We'll send you an email when it's ready and give you a That's link. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly okay. right. All right. And you're, of course, subscribed to the whole, you know, don't build one wheel of the car, then the next wheel of the car, then the next, then the chassis. It's the build a skateboard, then a, then a scooter, then a bicycle, then a motorcycle kind of mindset. Yeah. And in our case, it's, it's based on actual customer data flows. Like, for example, receipts is dependent on two other services. Um, right. So we may build the service and stand it up, but we're not going to tie it into the end user data flow until the whole scenario can be realized. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's more like you've got a, a bunch of robots all sticking parts onto the onto yep. the page at the same time and they just sort of pop in whenever they can. Yep. So you know, it to to allay the fears of, well, you got all these things out there working, you know, maybe maybe that slows stuff down. The fact that they are asynchronous means you can do everything all at once. Uh in parallel, yeah. Yeah, in parallel. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, there's, there's limits to parallelism. It's not you know, the sort of perfect, um, oh, perfect sure. world. but yeah, you can certainly do more things in parallel when yeah. there are dependencies and stuff, but that gets yep. back to our first question of, well, if there are dependencies, then why are they in separate services? You know, where yeah. do we draw the line? Sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, so, you know, think about, well, right. And it's, it's, again, it's sort of these domain concepts, right? So in our case, like one of the services we depend on is going to be the security token service. Right. Well, that's very clearly something that's going to need to rev at a different pace than receipts. Yeah. So it's, it's a very clearly a different concept. Um, you know, do other things that are, that, that are similar enough, that are cohesive enough, that are t- too small to make sense to incur the cost of the infrastructure by themselves? Yeah, then they should be combined. And how do you handle reports when, you know, things are all spread out like that? Does it make it easier or does it pose a bigger challenge? I actually don't think it's really any different. Um, I mean, at least given the complexity of our reports, 
is that reporting is another service that uh, is has the same sort of eventual consistency characteristics um, that grabs data and correlates it from other services. Um, one of the nice things is that because they're their own service and they're a customer of other services is that they can actually uh, help drive requirements to other services. Like for example, I don't want JSON. That's not how I best work. Mm. I'd like you to give me CSV or I'd like you to give me some sort of uh, streaming kind of like, and so you can actually, you have more flexibility to optimize for the unique requirements of customers of the different services. And um, as far as data storage goes, you obviously have different options depending on your business model and all that stuff. But do, right. does uh, your storage medium, you know, your your SQL versus no no SQL versus document database? I mean, does that do uh, are those things dictated by the architecture of microservices to go towards one or the other? No, and in fact, they're kind of freed up by, by that architecture, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have a, a share-nothing strategy. So each service um, uses the data store that makes the most sense for that type of data. Yeah. So you might have multiple data stores. Uh, totally. In fact, you will. Yeah. Um, that, that said, you know, from a company and cultural aspect, you don't want it to be a complete free-for-all um, because of you, you want, as people move around between teams, you want as much sort of... Um, uh, share the ability to transfer knowledge and, and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing is we try and avoid uh, picking technologies that are just blatantly vendor lock-in, right? So if we're going to go to a document store, we'll probably pick something like Mongo that we can run in either VMs or containers um, because, again, it's there's that, there's that portability that we really like. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I've almost run out of questions. Is there anything else that we can <laughs> talk about? Did we cover everything? I mean, I, I would add just one thing, and, and that is that, um, you know, it is it is sort of, to bring back Conway's laws, you, you get the software product that reflects the the organization or the, or the group of people. But I would say the converse is also true, is that the, the approach that you take um, architecturally can sometimes shape the group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and in our case, what we've found is by adopting this, this approach, this style, um, and saying, you know, look, these team, you, you engineering teams, you are accountable end to end, right. which means you have the, you know, you have the ultimate, you know, sort of responsibility, but also flexibility and you're being pushed to grow and to learn and to understand these things. And here, these are real challenges. And, you know, you need to be able to build a system that can be globally distributed and scale at the level of the internet. Um, our engineers love that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Including the responsibility to deploy and operate it. Yeah, I mean, all pretty much all of our deployment is is automated. You know, so that's not so much the issue. Although all of our developers understand how it works, which is you know amazing. Um, but yeah, it's the carrying. You know, pager duty is uh, has been a little bit of an adjustment. Um, but yeah, I think if you ask them, would you rather not have this and basically not have control over your system? I think they would say, I'm happy to have pager duty. Hmm. Right. Well, and, it, and it's also, a, I mean, a bigger sense of ownership. The question is, when a given team or individual gets a few services out there, like the numbers start to go up, is this, does this operational requirement become baggage? Like, w at what point am I no longer productive as a developer? 
Right. It could be right. And that's so, so there's so two things I'll say to that. One is um, this is where not making your service definitions too granular becomes really important, mm-hmm. right? Because at some, at some point, the sort of operational characteristics of running that thing, if you have, you know, 50 of them as opposed to five, you know, yeah, that could be a problem. Um, but the, the second is, and this is something we're trying to do right now, which is to um, change the organizational structure such that teams are not just developers, but that right. our teams include representatives from service management and operations and test, and that, that all of these folks come together to form, you know, cohesive feature crews. So, and that's really the whole point, right? Is that it's a teamed ownership, the same people involved all the way along. And then some of them might be expert coders and some of them are exactly. more expert in the networking and operation side of things. Exactly. I mean, we have a, you know, the sort of saying that I keep, you know, uh, hammering is, you know, our, our operating principles as a team are, are, are thus, right? Is the team is accountable for the work and the individual is accountable to the team. And that's right. how, that's, that guides everything we do. Yeah. Great. Oh, I like it. Howard, thanks so much for spending this hour with us. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.